Welcome, I'm Rami Khouri, journalist in residence at the American University of Beirut, and welcome to this episode of Professors at Work, where we interview scholars and professors and academics at AUB, ask them about their research, why are they researching the topics that they've chosen, what are they finding, why does this matter to anybody, and what will happen next in their world and the topics that they're researching around the globe. We're delighted to have today as our guest, Dr. Nadim Farajallah, who for the last 14 years has been the director, and he was the founder and is the director of the Climate Change and Environment Program at the Assam Faris Institute for Public Policy and International Affairs, one of the leading scholars in the Middle East on climate change issues, and he's also actively involved in international fora and uh, with the Lebanese government, with the UN agencies and others. Nadim, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Rami. This is kind of the coming end of the world topic, you know, climate change and the, the vulnerabilities, especially in the Middle East where it's already uh, dry and hot. But there are also conflicting reports we hear all the time about what it's going to mean for the sea level, for the rainfall, for droughts, for severe weather, and uh, all kinds of uh, scenarios that have been drawn up uh, for the Middle East. So, so tell us, in this world, this dynamic, troubling world of scenarios, what is the topic that you've chosen to investigate, and why did you choose that topic? Thanks for the opportunity, Rami, to talk about what we do at the Institute. Climate change is a whole wide topic. The impact of climate change on different sectors has been abundant and is becoming clearer and clearer and it affects more and more people. The Middle East is especially vulnerable for this because of the fragility of its ecosystems, because of the high population density where people are crammed into tight areas. And the ramifications of these impacts are going to be wide and far-reaching. There are many areas that we would like to explore and we have been trying to explore. We're looking at vulnerabilities of cities within this aspect and we're looking at how to help these cities build up their resilience and part of the sectors within the, these cities that are important, we investigated these. But just for today, just to make a more focused approach here, I'd like to talk a little bit about the climate change and its impact on water resources and water resources, not only in Lebanon, but Lebanon we used as a case study, but how it can be translated into uh, the wider Middle East. We have been working on several issues in terms of climate change and water resources. We were heavily engaged in two major projects, which I'm very proud of. And the team we have at IFI has done a wonderful job. The first one is funded by USAID and it's part of the Lebanon Water Project. We were asked to assess the water security of the different water establishments that manage the water sector in Lebanon. And to do that, we had to find a mechanism or an approach that really reflects the true sense of what water security is. Traditionally, people would think water security is how much water do I have and can access and how many people need to access this water now and in the future. And this volumetric, if you will, approach is very limited uh, meaning to it. What we try to do in our approach is, and specifically to make it a longer term, sustainable and wider, more inclusive approach, especially we want to start mainstreaming climate change in any and all policies. 
In so every sector. In every sector. But we wanted also now that we're tackling water security, we want the water sector in Lebanon to have climate change mainstreamed so there will be climate action in every policy that is being developed. And why did you take that approach? Because, because as, 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 as climate changes, let, let me back up maybe a little bit. As climate changes, Lebanon's water resources are going to be hit bad. Climate uh, change is going to raise temperatures, especially the minimum temperature, and we have found this to be across Lebanon. Snow cover is going to be reduced, so groundwater recharge is going to be reduced, so our groundwater is not going to be as available as it is and now. And it's already being uh, depleted, uh, depleted and, and polluted. And becoming more saline. Exactly, because we're pumping more than we're recharging. So it's going to get even worse with time. So as we move in that direction, we need to make sure that any policy thinks ahead and factors in the consequences of climate change into any action plan or strategy they, they put in. So what we looked at is adapted is from different methodologies, a, a water security assessment of six dimensions. One is the availability of water. The second is the environment from which we're taking that water and returning it as treated sewage, hopefully, mm -hmm. or raw sewage in some cases. The third dimension is the economic dimension. How much are we investing in a sector and how much is it returning to us mm -hmm. in turn? The fourth dimension is the infrastructure. We can have enough water, but if we cannot convey it or store it, mm -hmm. then we will have a problem. So we're looking at the infrastructure. We're looking at risk and hazard if we don't have hazard plans for drought, for flooding, for earthquakes. What do we do in terms of disasters? COVID was a disaster that nobody had really anticipated and its consequences on the water sector. And the biggest thing that we looked at was governance. How does governance affect water security? You might have everything in place, but if your system isn't well structured, the political framework is not there, the accountability, the transparency, the enforcement of laws is not there, you don't have enough of that. And this is probably a worrying situation because around the whole Arab region, if you look at the track record of Arab governments, say over the last 40 years, their track record in managing water uh, systems has not been very impressive and there's water shortages in most Arab countries now, and um, many, many are having to turn to desalination, uh, and still there's shortages and, and problems. So the governance issue should be a warning spot. It is, it is. It, and, and in our study, it showed up, it came out to be the lowest scoring dimension amongst all water establishments. To come back to your last point about the Arab world, we, we did a study for the Gulf, we, we presented it at, at a conference in uh, Abu Dhabi, a few years ago where we addressed the issue of water security in the Gulf region. And there also, even though they have a stronger central government than we do in Lebanon, their problem is they have the governance setup is wrong. They subsidize water, so people use water recklessly and wastefully. So these are the issues that need to be addressed. So when we were doing the water security study, two things came up. One is the impact of the Syrian refugees on water. And the other one is why is wastewater not being treated? Why are we having such a low supply where we do have enough resources to cover our needs? 
So this got us to, to, to look further and we got another grant, one from the Swiss Development Cooperation at the Swiss Embassy. And we looked at the predisposition to conflict in the Bekaa region uh, with respect to water. And we talked to about 60 unions of municipalities in the Bekaa. We talked to various stakeholders from NGOs, from local authorities, to the water establishments, the ministry, the various ministries, international organization, everybody. And we looked at their perspective. And we did a newspaper search going back on, we looked at the five leading newspapers, going back till not too far back to, to the year 2000. That's when the new law came in that changed the governance structure in, in the water sector. And the leading perception of, you know, trouble with, with water in the Bekaa was the presence of the Syrian displaced people. Wow. And this was seen as, they were seen as people who are taking their water and also polluting their resources. Due to several incidents that, you know, it was just mismanagement by the aid providers rather than the, the, the Syrians themselves. But this is, a, sorry, this is a typical situation with refugees everywhere. Exactly, exactly. Not to say that the water setup infrastructure and the entire water security for the Bekaa was poor. Mm. But then also, in practically overnight, within a period of two years, yeah. the population that was being served by the Bekaa water establishment doubled. Wow. Yeah. From 500,000 to near million or beyond. Wow. So this really caused the system to nearly buckle. It didn't buckle, but they still maintained the service level that was acceptable to some extent, and it could have improved better, but this was the case. The other thing that we looked at when we were doing the water security assessment is the role that we found out that energy or electricity is the major cause or practically the major cause for not having a one of the major causes, let's, let me correct myself, of not having water available on a 24-7 basis. Wow. One of the major For causes. For pumping stations? Or? It's exactly, because energy represents a third of the cost, of the operating cost for water stuff. Because of the interrupted power supply, the, the pumping stations, that's for the water supply, would not operate on a regular basis. And when they do, and they send water to buildings, especially in Beirut and major cities that have high rises, if these buildings don't have a generator themselves, the water will get there, but it cannot be pumped up to the building. This study is, is funded by the European Union under the MADAD project. We're working closely together in association with Oxfam. It's a fantastic study. We did four levels, let's say, of study within this major study. We looked, we did something called an energy audit, where we walked through 59 establishments, wow. whether water supply or wastewater. Uh -huh. And we did an energy audits for these, and we looked at where their problems are. We did this on a, on a walkthrough, and then we did an assessment for several of those in detail, level two audits. Uh, we got their electricity bills for the past few years. Wow. We went through each and every station that we visited. And that's one level. We did a, a renewable energy market assessment in the water sector to see how what, what the market looks like, the predisposition to adopting this, and, and the facility. Renewable energy, you're talking solar? Solar, wind, wind biogas, right. all of these. Mm. And we also, that's the second sub-study, if you will, we looked at the social impact mm -hmm. 
of energy in the water sector mm-hmm. and how that affects households. So we screened areas all over Lebanon and then we, because of COVID and the October 17 uprising, we didn't have enough time to do an extensive survey, but we identified hotspots and within these hotspots identified representative village. And we looked at a Rafid in, in the Bekaa, fantastic story there. And we looked at affordability of water, willingness to pay, and how the electricity, uh, intermit- intermittency in electricity supply affects them, etc. And uh, it, it was an eye-opener. What was, the, what was the bottom line? The bottom line is people are willing to pay more than the current tariff that is being, that's being levied against them by the Bika Water Establishment as long as they get good service. Right. They are willing, sometimes even up to a double. Regular uh, supply of water. Regular supply of water. Because right now what, what's happening is they pay their subscription fee. Mm-hmm. And then they have to pay for bottled water. Mm-hmm. And they also have to pay sometimes for tankers to bring right. in water. Right. And sometimes they pay for a well to be drilled and right. to pump it. Wow. So it's a whole set of payments. And then when we asked them, who will you pay it to? They said they are more willing to pay the municipality that money, that extra money, rather than the water establishment because they have more trust in in the municipality because of the service that's being given. Well, they also, the the local people know each other. Yes, and it is, uh, the thing is, Law 221, which uh, uh, regulates the the governance of the water sector, really did not do a good job Mm -hmm. of bringing together the different stakeholders. It cut off the municipalities and prevented them from any role in managing the sector. Mm. Whereas before they did have at least in wastewater. So once that was taken away, the interface between the water establishment, which was understaffed, poorly equipped, and through no fault of their own, because the way the restructuring happened, Mm -hmm. it happened with very little money, with little long-term thought that went into it. And the municipalities had to pick up the slack. And this is where people saw the municipality were able to complain and would get a response. When they were working with the water establishments, they did not have a person to complain to and And, get the response. And this brings up one of the themes of Lebanon over the last year and also much of the Arab world over the last 10 years, which is citizens who are really unhappy, Mm -hmm. even more than unhappy. They feel degraded because their central government is not treating them well, is Mm -hmm. not giving them the services they used to get. Mm -hmm. They feel there's inefficiency, there's corruption, there's real problems Mm -hmm. that stress on them, and lack of water uh, is an existential problem. It's Mm -hmm. not just a little inconvenience. Indeed. So how do you figure in the political pressures now in society when you also look at the impact of climate change that's coming? is, Is this a train wreck that's ahead of us or what? The train wreck has happened in Lebanon. It's not coming. <laughs> we're, we're derailed. Yeah. So we need to get the train back on track. And the only way we can get it back on track is to for governments at different levels, local authorities, central authorities, to regain trust. The only way you can regain trust, and trust is not something is something that's earned. It's not something that's given. Mm-hmm. And they have to earn it by doing the right thing and showing that they're doing the right thing. The proper engagement of citizens and also the responsibility, there is a huge responsibility on citizens because they have to act responsibly as well in terms of saving water, on paying their their, their fees, on ensuring that they hold 
the people in authority or responsible people, they hold them accountable. Right. This is where the check and balance occurs. In terms of climate change, we still have, I find, in Lebanon, a partial view. People have a small part of it, a view of the big picture. And when we talk to, when we're doing the resilience building and vulnerability assessment in cities, when we explain climate change to citizens and then ask them, what sectors do you think are going to be impacted? It's as if light goes on and says, ah, now we realize. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, we did a citizen engagement meeting in Batroun and then another one in Sur on a, for a study we're doing with Friedrich Ebert Stiftung. And we asked them, what sectors do you think are going to be impacted? Rank them. And water resources always came in as important, but tourism yes. was really brought high up. The commercial sector and transportation, funny enough, mm -hmm. because these are coastal cities and they were afraid of storm surges and how that will affect their coast right. and all of those. So we need as academics, academic institutes, authorities, whomever is in this role of knowledge generation and knowledge propagation and reaching out to regular citizens in, in a manner that really engages them and really shows them what the problems are so that they can buy into it. We cannot bring, you know, uh, any regulation or any plan without preparing the ground for it. So I ask you about climate change, you tell me about governance. I ask you about water issues, you tell me about governance. I ask you about protests, you tell me about governance. Yes. So what you're telling us is that these technical issues of climate change, energy, allocation of water, consumer use, pricing, all of these issues ultimately are a political governance issue. I always maintain and have been maintaining and preaching the technical solution to problems is relatively easy. The major problem is generating, I hate the term, it's not political will. It's, the, it's getting the structure or the ability to carry out plans properly and also to instill behavior change. So behavior change affects the, po the political system as it were and the governance aspect in and, in and of itself because behavioral change is not following the za'im blindly. Right. That's behavioral change. This is holding people accountable is behavioral change. And then once you're in power, listening to people is behavioral change as well. But then you have the carrot and the stick to make that work. So we only have a minute or so left. Uh, what are the big lessons that you've drawn so far from your research that will drive the next phase? What are you going to do next? We think that the best approach to get any effective implementation of or adoption of plans, etc., is at the local authority level, the municipality levels. Wow. These are people that are willing to work, able to implement plans, and ready to learn and listen. They are, the more we meet, then there is the newer generation in these municipalities yeah. that are well-educated, that are willing to take on the difficult tasks, and they understand engagement and inclusivity in their right. work. So I think working with municipalities and bringing them together through their unions or through a network is the fastest way of putting pressure on the central government to catch up. Is there any indication that the central government here or in other Arab countries is open to this happening? Yes. Uh, um, look, I've, I've had two, three ministries that we've worked with. Ministry of Environment, Minister of Energy and Water, and Minister of Agriculture. The last is we worked the least with. But in all these three, there are elements there 
that are more than helpful, much, much more than helpful. They are willing to go the extra mile. They push donors to have a more holistic approach to any of the problems that, uh, that are being funded. And also I have to plug here the regional water establishments. Yes. They are fantastic. The new crop, fantastic. Their main problem, there is a hiring freeze now, and they are burdened with political hirees right. that they cannot shed. Right. But they, the, the new crop that's coming in and what they're doing, they, there is a lot of promise. I am mm-hmm. not pessimistic well. in that sense. I am optimistic as long as we can energize the, the, the new generation and give them hope because they are our hope. Well, that's good to hear, and it's good to know that people like you and your colleagues like Ranal Hajj and others are working um, full-time on these issues, and AUB is lucky to have you running the energy and uh, the uh, climate change and environment program uh, at the Hassan Faris Institute for Public Policy and International Affairs. Thank you for being with us, Nadim Farajallah. Thank you, Rami. And thank you to our uh, listeners for joining us for this uh, edition of Professors at Work, where AUB professors talk about their research, why it matters, what they're finding, and how it impacts the world. Join us again next week.